0: a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, October 20th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. Please email KYMN Radio to let us know how we're doing on national security this week. Your feedback will help us to improve. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into something rather fascinating, and that topic is civil military relations here in the United States. America's gone through an interesting shift from the tumult of the Vietnam War when our nation's returning veterans were often met with disdain or outright hostility by some of our citizens. Today, things are very different, mostly for the better, but there are some citizens who believe civ- civilian leaders should defer to military leaders, which is a dangerous precedent to set in a democratic nation. Neither extreme serves our republic well, and both extremes have serious impacts on our national security. Our guest today is a deeply qualified scholar who will help us to understand the civil-military relation relationship in our nation and why it matters to American society. He's done extensive research and writing on this subject, and we're going to have an in-depth discussion on the topic. Professor Ron Krebs is Professor of Political Science at the University of Minnesota. A widely published expert on international relations and international security, he's best known for his insights into national security strategy, the politics of national security, the effects of war on democracy, presidential leadership, and military and society. Ron Krebs is author of the award-winning Narrative and the Making of U.S. National Security, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, and he's co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Grand Strategy. And Ron, has that released yet?
1: Uh yeah, I believe that's available if anybody wants to you know drop 150 bucks. All right. All I can't right. imagine anybody does though. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: He's also co-editor of In War's Wake, International Conflict and the Fate of Liberal Democracy, also from Cambridge University Press, and author of Fighting for Rights, Military Service and the Politics of Citizenship from Cornell University Press. Kreb's writing on a wide range of subjects in global affairs and international security have appeared in both scholarly and general interest journals, magazines, and websites including Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Lawfare, The National Interest, The Washington Post, Slate, and many others. In addition, he is currently Editor-in-Chief of the leading scholarly journal Security Studies. Among many other awards and prizes, Ron Krebs has been named a Fulbright Senior Scholar to Israel back in 2012, as well as Scholar of the College of Liberal Arts from 2017 to 2020, the Beverly and Richard Fink Professor in the Liberal Arts from 2015 to 2021, and a McKnight land-grant professor from 2006 to 2008 at the University of Minnesota. If you are near a computer right now and you'd like to learn more about Professor Ron Krebs' writing and research projects, you can visit www.ronkrebs.com www.ronkrebs, while you're listening to our show. Professor Ron Krebs, welcome to National Security This Week.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, John.
0: And you're in your uh, office this morning?
1: Well, what John and I are doing this on Zoom, what you're seeing behind me is the mid-century modern apartment I wish I had. Oh, <laughs> uh, but I yeah. So I'm, I'm home in my home office, but it's also the family dumping ground. So you don't want to see all that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, Ron,
0: I always ask our guests a few questions about their background just to get the, the ball rolling. And I, and I know that our, our audience uh, appreciates understanding a guest's perspective. So uh, with that said, what drew you to the study of national security issues?
1: Great question. Uh, And uh, I always sort of dread a little bit when people ask me this question, honestly. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people who work on these questions often have national security somewhere in their personal background. They served in the military. Parents, siblings, grandparents served in the military. I come to it from a very different angle. Uh, My family are relatively new arrivals to the United States came to this country on both sides, uh, or came to North America on both sides in 1951. Hmm. My mom's family emigrated to Canada. My father's here to the United States. They were, uh, my parents are survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, And my father grew up for five years in displaced persons camps in Germany. So I come within sort of deeply attuned to international relations through my family's history uh, and to really less national security the national insecurity. Mm. That is, uh, what happens when indeed you do not have that kind of security? How is that a cost borne by people? So there's, that's one side of it, that personal bio. The other, and I'll date myself for our audience, is <laughs> I very much came of age at the end of the Cold War. right? That is precisely, I graduated high school in 1991. My probably most prominent, I distinctly recall, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so whereas for the next generation, and for certainly I knew where I was when 9-11 happened, right? Um, and hardly the fall of the Berlin Wall was not my first political memory, but it's really significant for me. And of course that period of the early 1990s was a period John marked by the seeming rise of nationalism and nas- ethnic and nationalist conflict. Yeah. Uh, and it was also a period when the United States was quite clearly casting about for a new grand strategy. How would the United States interact with the world now that there was no longer the big bad Soviet bear to contend with? Yeah. Uh, And so that was a really shaped uh, the problems and uh, that I approached the world with as I came of age in the early 1990s. And
0: and specifically to this topic of civil military relations uh, that we're going to talk about in depth today. uh, What was the catalyst for you to enter into research on on that particular topic?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I didn't come to it because, again, because I had any kind of real personal history. I did have grandparents who have a grandfather who served in World War I, um, but uh, for serving in the Austro-Hungarian military. Um, But uh, it didn't exist much after that. But no, I came to it via an interest in nationalism. In this period of the 90s is the period of the Balkan Wars, the Rwandan genocide. Um, There's a paroxysm of nationalist violence exploding. Uh, all over the post-Soviet space in particular. Um, and that interest in nationalism led me to think about it historically in the role of state institutions in promoting a sense of cohesion. One of those state institutions that countries have often turned to historically to try to promote that sense of nationalism is the military. The military was thought in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it was called a school for the nation. In this country, progressives like Theodore Roosevelt and General Leonard Wood, who were quite concerned in the early 20th century about all the immigrants coming to America's shores and wanted to convert them into what they called true blue Americans. They promoted the idea of universal military service as a means to that end. In the post-colonial space, many new countries emerging from colonialism um, worried again about how would they bind their nations together look to the military as a means of doing so. And so I came to the study of military and society wanting to know, is the military an effective means of binding nations together? And that's the subject of the 2006 book that you mentioned, military service and on uh, fighting for rights, military service and the politics of citizenship. Okay. Uh, and okay. so if you're going to work on military and society, uh, <laughs> although I wasn't centrally working on what we sort of, uh, the heart of civil military relations that was how I came to the, the broadly to that subject matter. All right.
0: So that, that definitely tells me that we're going to have a great discussion today on this topic. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Ron Krebs, and we're talking about the very important subject of civil-military relations in the United States. Uh, Okay, Professor Krebs, let's go ahead and get into our core topic for today, and that's the civil-military relations piece. Uh, Can you give us just a short history on how that relationship has changed pretty much fundamentally from the Vietnam War to today? I mean, it's a fascinating transition when you think about it, worth considering as we dive into the discussion on this subject.
1: When we think about what's happened to civil-military relations over the course of the last half century, we have to start the story with the end of the draft with the end of mass conscription and the turn to what we call here in the United States, the all-volunteer force. Um, this is a turn from recruiting the military on the basis of conscription, in which roughly, in principle, um, all young males, to be clear at that time, young males serve, and moving instead to recruiting a military on the basis of market forces. The military is an employer, like in principle, like any other employer on the market. and has to tailor its pay and benefits packages, in order to bring the right people into the military that it wants to bring in. This had a number of critical implications. The one thing it obviously did is it narrowed who served in the military. The military of World War II, but even the military of the Cold War draft, was roughly representative of the nation. We can get into the details on that if you want, but it was, especially in World War II, right? Uh, roughly representative of the nation. As we move toward market recruitment of the military, there has been a profound narrowing of who serves in the military. It has been narrowed by race and ethnicity. Um, until the Iraq War, the military African Americans uh, were vastly overrepresented in the military. Uh, it also has narrowed military service by region. So you have a overrepresentation of folks from the South and the West, places that have historically more honor or martial cultures. There have always been more military officers from the South, but you also see this in the enlisted forces as well, with the turn to voluntary recruitment and market-based recruitment. And finally, the other thing that's crucial is it runs in families. Um, folks who's, uh, and I don't know if this is true of you, John, but folks who's, who served, it is far more likely that their parents served, their grandparents served. Uh, And then it is far less likely to see someone who is brand new to military service. And and I do
0: do want to follow up on that point later on in our discussion today, because there's a lot of things I want to get to as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The second thing that goes in line with this, and I have to say that we haven't fully sorted this out, is we've moved the period of Vietnam was, as your listeners will know, and some of them will have lived through, a period that involves profound denigration Of the military. Veterans, soldiers, veterans would walk through their towns, even small-town America, and literally be spat upon. Um, That should sound pretty foreign (laughs) to anybody under the age of about 60, right? Because we don't do that anymore, just the opposite, and I hope we will talk about that later. We've moved from the denigration to the military to its diametrical opposite, that is the placing the military on a pedestal, idolizing the military, as the best and the brightest. My gosh, if you could tell John Kerry, right, who famously testified before the Senate um, as a Vietnam veteran, right? Kerry, who was as as an opponent of the Vietnam War, but also as someone who personally experienced that kind of denigration. Third, um, we've also seen, with the growing distance between military and society, we've seen a growing tension and conflict between our civilian leadership, and our military leadership. Uh, it is also the case that uh, I mentioned that our officers have often historically come from the South in particular. Um, it travels in families. Uh, are Because people are self-selecting into military service, there is a close relationship, uh, statistically speaking, between serving in the military and being a political conservative and an identified Republican. Once upon a time, our leading military officers were proud not to have identified with a political party. George Marshall, who made his name as Eisenhower's number two during World War II, became ultimately Secretary of State in the Truman administration. George Marshall famously never voted. Colin Powell just passed away, as your listeners will surely know. Colin Powell was famously independent. He served in the Bush administration. In, uh, of course, at the time of the Iraq War as uh, Secretary of State, but Colin Powell was recruited by both political parties unsuccessfully to get him to run for higher political office. Yeah. And he endorsed Barack Obama as president yeah. in 2008. Um, that is rare for, frankly, for Powell's generation, and it is really rare today. We are all familiar with retired generals getting up there at political rallies, at the conventions, endorsing political candidates, and of course expressing themselves all over our cable news shows uh, and all over the internet on the political issues of the day. That is true. And that relates to the fourth change, And then I'll, uh, uh, which is the erosion of the military's apolitical commitment. It's commitment to staying out of partisan politics. And even in principle, though this has often been observed more in the breach but even in principle, staying out of the public eye when it comes to policy discussions. Um, and we have seen this erosion both from the military side, right? We're getting, a, as I said, a lot of retired generals endorsing political candidates mm-hmm. and, and expressly doing so as retired generals, right? Nobody right. cares about them. if They're just you or me. <laughs> right, right. But also from the civilian side. Uh, the civilians have also been eroding uh, the military's have been politicizing the military. Yeah.
0: And, and, and let's follow up on, on some of those things in, uh, in a little bit as well. Uh, but on this topic, uh, when, when you and I were prepping for this show, uh, you had mentioned General Mark Milley, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and there are clearly <laughs> clearly some controversies around General Milley. Uh, what, what's your take on the very difficult positions he's been placed in during his time as chairman under, under two different administrations? And, I, and I'll add to that, maybe comment a little bit on uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, the Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, who sparked serious controversy over a series of uh, YouTube videos he posted over our uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, I know he was uh, going in for a court-martial. I'm not sure where that stands right now today, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the predicament that Millie was put in uh, by political leaders and uh, the decision on a, on a part of Lieutenant Colonel Scheller to actually make comments, political comments, uh, from his platform across YouTube.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh- Look, General Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, perfectly epitomizes precisely the tension that I closed the previous comments with. Uh, Obviously, General Milley was placed under a lot of pressure by President Donald Trump, um, uh, as were other members of the defense establishment. President Trump was, uh, regardless of one's politics, I think it's fair to say, he was proudly transgressive of boundaries of all sorts. (laughs) That was part of his political persona. He was <laughs> proud of it. Uh, and he did that in the civil military domain as well. Uh, President Trump would often speak before the enlisted uh, as if it were a political rally. Uh, and you would see, and I think it's fair to say from the perspective of civil military relations, troublingly, you would see MAGA hats out in the crowd. This was very unusual. You, whatever else one might say about Barack Obama, this is not something Barack Obama used to do when he addressed uh, the enlisted. Uh, And, of course, things with General Milley reached ahead in the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, when President Trump marched across Lafayette Square with uh, General Milley on one side of him. And very quickly, General Milley realized that he had made a a terrible, terrible error, that he had allowed himself to be placed at the heart of what was essentially a political stunt. Mm -hmm. And he is not a political appointee. No. At the same time... Um, Mayor said it's both from the civilian side but also from the military side. It is also striking when you look at all of the books being written by journalists on the Trump administration, how many quotes we have from General Milley about what happened in the Trump administration or from people clearly very, very close to Mark Milley that have been sent, sent out there as his representatives to speak, that he's authorized to speak to the media. And you see the ways in which General Milley is playing politics as well, right? He's not saying I'm above politics. I'm going to be working to burnish my reputation. And it's a little bit hard. It's a little bit of trying to have one's cake and eat it too. Now, look, General Milley, um, there is. if you become chairman of the Joint Chiefs, let's be clear, you are a politician as well as a general. No question about it. (laughs) Right? You cannot be good at that job without being a politician. And Colin Powell, uh, was the model for all the chairmen of the Joint Chief that would follow him, right? He was a very political general, and it should be said, while I have a great admirer of Colin Powell on the one hand, he also um, was a trendsetter in another way, which you won't see mentioned in the op in the obituaries, which is that he published amidst the public debate over should the United States intervene in the Balkans and conduct peacekeeping missions, he published an op-ed in the New York Times that basically said, That's not what the U.S. military does. There is no question that that was a deep violation of civil military norms. So Powell, as a deeply political general, transgressed those boundaries as well. Um, And so General Milley is a deeply political general. Now, if it's not inappropriate, John, to attribute (laughs) a a, a quote uh, that is often attributed, and is rightly so, to James Forrestal, who was Secretary of Defense in the 1940s, he said, I'm always amused by people who, I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm always amused by people who think that you can separate politics from policy. He said, you can no more separate politics from government than you can separate sex from procreation. (laughs) And that was said in 1947 or so. So I figure we can say it here on the radio. Um, General Milley is a deeply political general, and so you see these pressures coming from both sides. Now, you mentioned the case of Lieutenant Colonel Scheller. Lieutenant Colonel Scheller... Um, And I thank you for bringing him to my attention. It had not yet hit my radar screen when you mentioned him to me last week. Um, I watched his deeply passionate and I have no reason to doubt sincere, very sincere videos. He uh, posted two videos to YouTube uh, in which he demanded military senior leadership accountability over the tragedies of Afghanistan, what he thought of as deep policy errors with regard to Afghanistan. Um. I'm curious your take, John. I mean, my sense is this isn't really about civil-military relations. This is really about internal military discipline. His yeah. target was less U.S. policy in Afghanistan than if, as he puts it in one of the videos, if Secretary of State Tony Blinken is going to get sort of horsewhipped in front of the House and relevant House and Senate committees, why are they treating the uh, head of central command and the chairman of the joint chiefs with such deference right they should be they are political figures essentially who should be held accountable for the advice that they gave and for the intelligence that they provided which in Shell, which by any account was clearly problematic whether <laughs> they uh, whether regardless of where you stand on the policy issue there is no question as secretary of defense austin and chairman of the joint chiefs milley clearly said there was an intelligence failure they did not predict and did not expect the Taliban to make the kind of advances that the Taliban made over the course of the spring and summer of 2021. Yeah. And so Lieutenant Colonel Scheller said publicly, right, and no organization likes to have its dirty laundry aired in public, <laughs> let alone the military, which the essence of the military is discipline. When you are given an order, will you do it at the end of the day unquestioningly on the battlefield? Right. That's not yeah. the time for public for debate. And so the military came down on Lieutenant Shell, Colonel Scheller, uh like a ton of bricks, as he fully expected that they would.
0: Yeah, and he even said that in his video. He knew that uh, he was putting his career on the line. And that, I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head there. It's about uh, the good order, and dis, good order and discipline of the military. Uh, and when you're in the ranks, uh, questioning chain of uh, command, uh, you can do that. But there are is a system for doing that, not social media. That's generally frowned upon rather heavily. Uh, so I want to give
1: go, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller credit, by the way. Right. I mean, we often hear in society in general, people want to be able to protest without consequences. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. What Scheller understood is that no meaningful protests require sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I believe I you know, I don't really know the details, John, but I believe that the uh, sentence has been handed down. I saw the headline, but didn't have a chance to look at it. Um, it was not nearly as harsh and dire as Lieutenant Colonel Scheller was expecting. I, I think he's been invited to
0: retire. So. Uh, which is not an unexpected uh, kind of an outcome on this. Uh, so we've been talking about uh, this civil-military relations uh, I- issue a good bit. We, we You highlighted uh, General Mark Milley and, and sort of the conundrum that he faced under two different administrations. Uh, certainly the, the the testimony he was giving in Congress, both he and, and Secretary Austin and uh, General McKenzie, uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle in Congress were trying to make political hay uh, out of every response that they gave, but uh, let 's move on to to the specifics of the civil military research uh, that, that you did. Can you tell us a little bit about the research methodology just so people understand kind of where this uh, civil military relations research came from, the, how you did it
1: how you did the research the series of uh, the research i 've been doing over the last few years has really been trying to understand the consequences of militarism. Right. And militarism, of course, is a a very loaded term. Many people think have long cast it into the dustbin of history. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. Where I stand understand militarism is that militarism is fundamentally about promoting an idealized image of the military, valorizing the military. Mm -hmm. We do that in this country. There is no question. Uh, There are no other places that I know where you routinely have parking spaces reserved for active duty uh, military and veterans, where we ask our active duty and veterans to stand up so we can honor them, where they are allowed to go onto planes first, right? These are all small mundane things, but that is what sustains a culture, which is everyday practices that everyday citizens participate in. We live in a deeply militarist culture in that sense. We also live in a militarist culture in another sense, which is that the United States is a great power that uses its military on a regular basis. Uh, Whether whether, we should or not. (laughs) Whether we should or not, the U.S. military's operational tempo has been far higher since the end of the Cold War over the last 30 years than it was in the 30 years preceding it. You don't have, you haven't had as many of the, you know, you don't have 500,000 troops on the ground the way you did in Vietnam. But the U.S. military is stationed now in more countries all over the world with permanent and temporary military bases right, than it ever had, than it was throughout the Cold War. That is true. So what I wanted to try to get at, and this is, is what are the consequences of militarism? Now, there are a lot of ways of doing that, and historically, I've often done it in, in using qualitative methods and case studies and interviews, and that will ultimately probably be part of this project.
0: And so, just for our audience, qualitative means you interviewed people and took their
1: statements? Would you look at, look at historical documents okay. and case studies and things like that, as opposed to quantitative research, where you're looking at Hard numbers, and one set of hard numbers that I was really interested in is: what do people think about the proper roles of civilians and military, and why do they think that people serve in the armed forces?
0: So let's go ahead and get. Can we get into your findings? Uh, Because I'm 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 really excited to talk about this. Uh, Your research focused on the public's perception of why people join the military, and what were the results of that research?
1: So the, we focused on two questions. One was why people joined, and the second is what did they think broadly about civil-military relations. So in terms of why they joined, we provided people with four ideal type, if you will, motivations, right? One rooted in very real reasons that people serve. One is for pay and benefits. Another common narrative is that people serve because they're desperate, because they have no other options as they see them. Maybe they serve because they're good patriot, they're patriots, and maybe they serve because they are good citizens. And look, if people uh, were sort of honest in a way about why they think people serve, we all know that there is a substantial component of the reason people serve is because of that pay and benefits package. When in the dark days of Iraq, the army was under recruiting. And it was under recruiting because suddenly people realized you could really die serving in the U.S. military. (laughs) Uh, And so um, every service except the Marines didn't hit their numbers. So what they have to do they upped the pay, they upped the benefits packages, they upped the signing bonuses, and lo and behold, they hit their numbers. So we expected, right, if you have, based on that, how the U.S. military actually recruits, you would say, oh, people should really subscribe to the idea that it's about pay and benefits. Um, moreover, you would say, on the other hand, our, I challenge you to find a politician who ever acknowledges that. <laughs> every Veterans Day, every Memorial Day, it is all about our heroes, the best and the brightest, right? The best America has to offer. And what we discovered um, is that people are about 50/50 between people being intrinsically motivated that is, patriot the good citizen narrative, and extrinsically motivated, meaning pay and benefits and desperate. So we had about 40 percent of folks saying "pay and benefits," about 10 percent, saying folks were desperate," about, you know, roughly 50 percent overall between the other two narratives. And two things really mattered to this. One, not surprisingly, political ideology. If you identified as a political conservative, you were far more likely to say patriot or good citizen. If you identified as a political liberal, you were far more likely to say, to think people don't really want to serve in the military. You really were far more likely to say you're doing it because of the money, whether because you are attracted to it, that's pay and benefits, or because you feel pushed into it because you're desperate. But the second finding, I think, was far more interesting, which is that uh, if you served in the military since 1973, since the time of the all-volunteer force, then you were far more likely to recognize and acknowledge that, in fact, it was pay and benefits that was really important. People, in other words, who were drawn into the military by pay and benefits, or whose buddies, even if they were motivated by patriotism... Their buddies were motivated by pay and benefits. They knew it, but the fascinating part is their families didn't. Mm. We controlled for. We, we asked people: Did um, you know? Did someone in your family serve in the military? And people whose families some if you had a fam, household member serving in the military, you were systematically more likely to say people serve for reasons of patriotism. So we don't know why that is. I can tell you a couple stories about that. It could be psychological. You have to give meaning to what your family does. It could be that they, it could be that the soldiers in their family were lying to them and telling them, <laughs> hey, we did it for patriotism when they know it was really about pay and benefits. <laughs> Regardless, that is a systematic difference. Um, I would like very much, uh, John, if you follow up about that I'd like to talk really a lot though, about I think even more important is why, what Americans believe about the respective proper roles of civilian and military.
0: Yeah, well, we can do that. Uh, so very quickly for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Ron Krebs, and we're talking about the very important subject of civil-military relations in the United States. Uh, so, Professor Krebs, those results, frankly, are, are pretty fascinating. I, I want to ask a couple of very quick follow-up questions, and then let's get into uh, some of the more details of this. Did your respondents differentiate between officers and enlisted personnel regarding perceived motivations for joining the military? Or did you see any difference between uh, the service in question? In other words, the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Air Force, or, or even the new Space Force, for instance? Uh, or, or are those two areas, those two question areas, outside
1: of your research?
0: Anything you can say to shine, shine a light on that subject?
1: No, we do. We have asked people about um, officers and enlisted uh, and generally, keep in mind the average American. Very few people know anybody who serves in the military. That is true. So they don't. That's a pretty fine-grained distinction, as far as they are concerned, right? As for we see no significant differences in the perceived motivations between officers and enlisted. If that's a fine-grained distinction, you can imagine what a fine-grained distinction it is to talk about different services. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they don't really understand the difference in the culture between the Army, the Marine Corps. I don't think they know the Coast Guard at all, right? <laughs> it's just not uh, something that people understand. And so it's getting very fine-grained, and when we have asked them about that. It has no real impact. Um, we also do ask people where they served or where their family members served, in which service, or in what form they served. Here, are lim- there, there might be meaningful distinctions because, of course, people who serve in those services or whose families serve in those services, do have some greater understanding of them. The problem, John, is that it has to do with the methodology. We had a pretty robust survey, 2,500 respondents. Wow. Keep in mind, that's a lot. But now you're asking me to drill down into people who know somebody who served in their family in a particular service. So we only have about 10% of our respondents add someone in their family served. Now you're asking us to drill down to a particular service. So we just don't have enough numbers in those cells, numbers in those categories to be able to say anything really confidently about their perceptions. We would have to really ask this of a much larger population. The big, big national surveys that might have tens of thousands of people, they ask one and only one question about the military which is about people's trust or confidence in the military. Yeah, that is yeah. the routine question that Gallup asks, Pew asks all the time. But that's all we know. And
0: that's pretty high level. That doesn't give you a whole lot of data. Uh, let me yeah. let me go back to something that you said uh, a little while ago, and, and I'll just give you my quick perspective. Uh, from what I saw during my career, which spanned from 1986 to 2011, uh, military service really started to become almost almost a caste-like system. And what do I mean by that? And and you talked about it a little bit. It was my experience, which I think expanded even over the past decade, that the people who join the military tend to come from primarily from military families. Mom and or dad served, aunts and uncles served, so so they join. Uh, the short of it is that the burden of national defense, those serving in military uniforms. It tends to be borne by very few families, generally speaking. I mean, you said it yourself in that uh, 2,500 people that you surveyed, 10% knew somebody who was in the military. And so maybe you can set me street, straight. D- d- would America be well served by bringing back some sort of a national service program? And I, and I don't mean a military draft. I think a volunteer force gives us a much better, higher quality of uh member of the military. But some sort of national service that demonstrates to America's young people why it's important to have skin in the game, so to, you know, quote unquote, uh, and get involved in our political discourse. I mean, what do you think about that?
1: My real concern um, is civilian control of the military, oversight and accountability.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, National service, I think, is a very important idea, but not because it will have anything to do with civilian control. And a lot of concern is that the distance between the civilian population and the military means that these are two separate worlds people are doing national service, only a small percentage of them are going to go into the military, because frankly, the military doesn't need them or want them. So most people will end up doing what when Germany, for instance, had long had national service, right? It would be remarkable, right? Um, Many people, for instance, serving in senior citizen homes. Mm -hmm. Now, that is really valuable for other reasons, Uh, right? The one thing we know is that we are a deeply polarized nation, John. That is true. We need (laughs) a sense of community. Yeah. We need an understanding that to be an American is not just about the rights, but about responsibilities, right? about obligations, and that hopefully uh, we Americans have more in common with each other than not, that we shouldn't descend into a nation of tribes. Now, um, I think it's foolish to think that it's just because people on both sides of the aisle don't really know each other, that that's why they don't like each other. But it is increasingly true that they also don't know each other. It is increasingly true in public opinion surveys that Democrats and Republicans just have nothing to do with each other socially. They don't marry each other. They don't live in the same communities. They don't go to the same churches and synagogues and mosques. They are living in different worlds. And they watch different television and visit different websites. And those bubbles, you might say, that's a very dangerous place for our nation to be. So I say somewhat facetiously, if this means that our young people can simply bond over the pain of that common <laughs> experience of picking up garbage and caring for the elderly and whatever national service is demanded, that's not a bad thing. But it's also valuable because we do have a culture of rights over the la- over recent decades. And we do at the same and we've lost sight of the responsibilities that citizenship entails.
0: So you also brought up something uh, a little while ago that I want to follow up, and and that's that deference uh, issue. Um, I'll tell I'll tell you this, and and I'm honest about this. Uh, I always appreciate it when people thank me for my service, uh, and I always respond truthfully uh, that it was an honor to serve. I mean, for me, it was. Uh, I sometimes feel, though, that, that people are overly deferential to military personnel and veterans. It's good to honor, I think, because service is a, is a serious commitment and it's dangerous out there, and it takes real sacrifice. But is that is that deference to the military, is that a healthy trait in a democratic society for our republic?
1: Yeah, great question, close to my heart. Democratic civil-military relations means that... Policy is made by civilians because ultimately it is the civilians who are accountable to us. Yeah. I cannot vote Mark Milley out of office. Right. Or General McKenzie out of office. Um, I can vote the president out of office. I can vote my representative out of office. So the heart of democracy is the idea that the people making the fundamental decisions about policy are ultimately accountable to the people. Uh, And, of course, the president appoints, has lots of appointees, right? But ultimately, we assume that those appointees are representing the will of the president. And if we disagree with the president sufficiently, seriously, we can vote the president out of office. Mm -hmm. What I found in my research was really disturbing is that most Americans, or that half of Americans, really don't get that. (laughs) They really don't understand. So we asked people, we presented them with scenarios, John. And we asked them kind of a direct trade-off. We said, we asked them, if senior U.S. military officers object to a proposed military mission, should the president reject the proposed mission even if the president thinks the mission worthwhile? So the president thinks you should do it, but his generals are saying no. Should the president fundamentally just listen to the generals? Should he show deference to them? Should he suspend his judgment in favor of theirs? Half of our sample, this representative sample of Americans in June 2019, half of them said, yes, the president should do what he, what they say. We reversed it and we said, what if U.S. senior U.S. military officers approve? Should the president approve the mission anyway, even if the president thinks it's a terrible idea? And at that point, the number declined, but it was still 40% of Americans who said the president should do what the military says in the affirmative. That is disturbing. The traditional view that, Mar- that John, you surely were exposed to, the traditional view says, tactics are reserved for the military, right? They're in charge of tactics and operations. They are experts in the application of violence. And the traditional view says, when it comes to strategy and policy, that's the purview of civilians. The American people don't get it. And in fact, we asked further questions about tactics. No meaning, really big. No meaningful difference between strategy and tactics. It's all the same to them. Uh, And people who are deferential are people who are deferential. And there's a lot of deference. Americans also don't seem to understand that it's a bad idea for the military to get involved in public policy debate. Right. This is, of course, a way like Colin Powell's op-ed back in the early 1990s over the Balkans. Right, the mili- This is a way the military has always acted to shape uh, policy by working with allies in Congress rather than the executive branch to whom they're directly responsible. The president, after all, is constitutionally the commander-in-chief of the military and by uh, public testimony and by, and rarely, but Powell did it, by op-eds. Um, the vast majority of our sample didn't think there was anything wrong with the military getting involved in public debates over policy even over matters that had nothing to do with the military so you talk about (laughs) the dangers of deference right we actually also ask questions about how expert do you think officers are in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the military (laughs) right about the economy about the environment and people are like oh yeah they know everything no we (laughs) don't (laughs) huge numbers huge numbers so um, when it comes to policy, and there is no meaningful difference in people's minds between you, John, as a retired military and active duty. When it comes to public policy advocacy, the numbers are identical. People hmm. don't recognize the difference. And that's a problem because the military is not accountable.
0: So I have two other questions then that I, that I want to ask of you before we kind of conclude our show today. Let's take a look at the civil-military relations through another lens. And, and I've found uh, throughout the course of my life and whatnot as I've studied different issues in national security, uh, and i f- certainly found while doing this show this throughout this year that we often clearly see failings in other nations uh, when we take a hard look at their politics, their economics, or security policy, but we rarely see those same failings in ourselves. Uh, we 're kind of blind to our own failings here in America, uh and often refuse to admit that we have any failings in the first place uh, john, <laughs> and i'm perfect <sure> john <laughs> how how do you, How do other high functioning uh democratic nations handle civil military relations? Maybe we take a look at what other nations do that are effective in this or that have a good strong separation of military from uh policy uh, and maybe that kind is could be educational for us in this show to sort of. Understand what we're doing wrong right now, or potentially doing wrong, that could lead to uh, really bad ramifications for our country.
1: Well, uh, I think you said, it made one, one error, John. You said other high functioning democracies. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're not a high functioning democracy given paralysis in Washington and all sorts of other stuff. Um, you know, the, Ameri- the United States was, of course, historically a model for many nations mm-hmm. in civil military relations. And obviously at the very highest levels, even in well-functioning democracies, um, any leading general is a politician. That is simply the nature of the post. Uh, it, we shouldn't think that other nations are doing great. In fact, I think we're seeing in ways that we haven't fully made sense of yet, in erosion. This past summer, there was uh, letters that were, two letters that were issued by retired, a series of uh, something like 80 or 100 retired French senior military officers, precisely uh, over concerns about the direction that the Macron government was taking. So, um, and of course, in countries like Israel, it is routine and has long been routine for folks to make the transition from being in the professional military to being in the political sphere that is true uh, in, way, in ways that are uh, many israelis or some israelis i should say think are problematic as well but in many other countries that's not routine right you don't see that uh that pathway in britain you don't see that pathway in germany and france um, and even in the united states by the way um <clears throat> excuse me we have not generally i mean we're hard-pressed to think of too many retired generals who have made their way into politics Donald Trump's appointment of three retired generals to senior cabinet posts was so unusual that it provoked a whole sort of bevy of commentary amongst the, the professoriate and the punditocracy, right? About whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, that was very unusual. And Trump, of course, soured on the folks that he used to call my generals, yeah. right? Ultimately, yeah. he fired every one of them. Um, one thing we, you know, the United States is clearly unusual in its degree of militarism as i said at the beginning of the show but one thing that we have found and i'm writing another article on this is that there's we've we've always asked questions at every sur- lots of surveys on trust in the military turns out the us is at the high end cross nationally of trust in the military but it isn't really that unusual not nearly unusual as one would think in fact Across high-functioning demo- across what you call high-functioning democracies, across consolidated democracies, trust in the military is routinely seventy percent or more. The United States is a bit on the high end. What seems to drive this? There's a lot of things, but I think it's fair to say that countries that experience high levels of threat yeah. or perceive themselves as such—Israel, South Korea, Finland—because of their history with the Russians, right—that right, have the draft have today, and it's seen as justified by their populace, have high levels of trust in the military. Countries that are um, are experiencing a high operational tempo with the military, like the U.S., even if the U.S. is not experiencing objectively high levels of threat, also lots of trust in the military. But in general, one of the strongest predictors of trust in the military is, do you have trust in other governing institutions? Mm. Well-functioning governments promote a lot of trust in their, amongst their population, right? Because they're delivering the goods. Frankly, it's performance. And even if them, regardless of whether the military performs well, one of the strongest predictors is, do you trust your government? It is therefore not accidental that those, that non-whites in the United States, who generally have lower trust in government for very good and obvious reasons, also have less trust in the military. Because the military is a leading state institution and it simply gets assimilated to how they feel about all other state institutions.
0: Yeah. And, and yet uh, a, a lot of people in minority communities wind up joining the military as that goes back to your pay and benefits. Uh, is, that, is that the driving factor? I mean, hard to know. Uh, but
1: Well, we, right. I mean, I think that um, so one thing that is interesting is that non-whites are less likely in our data to subscribe to the intrinsic or the patriot narrative right they are less likely to say people serve for reasons of patriotism (laughs) they are more likely to say either pay in benefits or desperate but they are not more likely to say desperate however when we have given people fake news stories and we talk interview a soldier with a kind of a nondescript name michael cameron and then we ask them um, we give them, and he says, I served because I saw no other way to, you know, I was, because I had no other, saw I was having no other choice. And all my buddies served for the same, are serving for the same reason. People are much, much more likely to think that Michael Cameron is a black man.
0: So I'm going to ask you one last uh, question before we close out the show, and I think uh, hopefully this will lead to a, another question that I want to ask you before we close out. But this is the, this is the one for the show. As you consider the broad results of your research on this topic, how, how do you think it impacts America's long-term national security? I mean, what, what things did you find that gave you confidence the people of our nation strongly support American national security as it's always sort of been? Or, and what results have given you pause?
1: One of the classic accounts, the, really the founding of a book on civil-military relations in many ways, was written by a very distinguished now deceased scholar named Samuel Huntington. Oh, yes, yeah. His book was called The Soldier in the State, published over 60 years ago. And Huntington said that national security is essentially a balancing act. You could design a system of civil-military relations so restrictive that civilians make every decision of note and the result would be a military so hamstrung that it could not act in the service of the nation. Alternatively, he said, you could loosen the bonds in the military so greatly that there is no accountability whatsoever. Finding that balance, how to give the military the authority it needs to protect the nation while also keeping the military in check and ensuring that it is ultimately accountable to the people that is the great challenge of designing civil-military relations. Uh, and there are a lot of disputes, obviously, about the best way to do that. The danger is that our militaristic nation uh, and a populace that does not care, seemingly, about oversight and accountability, that does not recognize the ways in which the military, getting involved in matters publicly in matters of policy, undercuts the ability of civilians to control erodes our national security over the long haul. Ultimately, our national security depends upon democratic control at the end of the day. So in that balancing act, our militaristic culture and the refusal, frankly, of our politicians to speak honestly about the nature of military service does not do our nation real favors. If the United U.S. national security depends, as well as U.S. democracy, Depends upon a healthy system of democratic civil military relations. Um, it is fundamental to our democracy, and it requires Americans actually understanding what democracy requires of them.
0: So, so a, a much stronger education in American civics, perhaps.
1: Perhaps, but of course, what's really um, required is you know simply a course as a sophomore in high school. Ain't going to cut it. No, no. And no, that's what no, we... It is, civics is something that needs to be lived, yeah. not something that needs to be simply taught once in a blue moon. Yeah. Uh, and that is something that our nation is struggling with. So when I think about the importance of national service, John, to go back to one of your earlier questions, I think that itself is a kind of an education in civics and understanding that we are not just individuals, but we are part of a larger community. And that sense of commitment, at least as the hope, the possibility that we can inspire people to care about the larger community and what it takes to uphold the community. Yeah,
0: And I would tell you that from my perspective, uh, this oversight uh, topic that you've brought up uh, to me, that is critically important. And I I would just say that uh, Congress has punted on their responsibilities on an oversight perspective over the executive branch with regards to American national security Uh, investments uh, overseas uh, over the past, I'd even say 30 30 plus years, frankly. Uh, But that's just my
1: perspective. That is the one area, John, in which people really are very supportive. I should say people really do like the idea of oversight. And the two air, even on very basic matters, like how the military trains its own soldiers. Everyone always wants, when we ask them subject by subject, they want more frequent and more intense oversight. Mm. There's a lot of consensus around that. And there is, not surprisingly, people are paying some attention to the news because the demands for oversight are greatest in two areas where the military has clearly had trouble policing itself. And that is sexual harassment and assault uh, and treatment of veterans. Right. So people are kind of attentive to what's (laughs) been going on in the VA system and Walter Reed. So we are getting a sense that people are kind of paying attention to stuff. But what that really means, um, as you say, people are very supportive and yet. Congress shows no real interest in engaging in very much oversight of the military yeah. in a serious way. And so that suggests that that's a pretty weak commitment, I think.
0: That is unfortunate. Uh, so unfortunately as well, we've we sort of reached the end of our show today. Professor Ron Krebs, thank you for joining us on National Security this week. Uh, Ron, very quickly, uh, what other topics uh, do you spend time researching? And, and uh, you, you mentioned your, your book, The Oxford Handbook of Grand Strategy, has just released. Uh, Tell us about some of the other research and writing projects you're working on, just very briefly, if you could.
1: Yeah, so I'm continuing to do a bunch of stuff associated with military and public attitudes toward the military, including on attitudes of different racial minority groups with respect to military casualties. We have some very interesting preliminary findings in that regard and cross-culturally. But the big project I'm working on that I'm really excited about and would be happy to talk about at some other point relates to this notion of exceptionalism mm. that you were alluding to earlier, this idea that we don't need to learn anything from anybody else. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm really interested in what is the effect of what shapes American democracy, right? And what part of that is, um, what is the relationship? I'm really interested in what effect does warfare have on American democracy? Uh, and I have a, it actually cuts both ways and it's refracted through the, the lens of American exceptionalism. Uh, and so I'm really interested in working on working on that and writing a book on that subject as well, and ultimately may write a book on this, some of this work on public attitudes toward civil military relations.
0: That's great. That's great. So, so Ron, I know that you are a prolific writer and you've thought long and hard about this idea of an American grand strategy. Uh, I would like to invite you back now officially to come back and talk about grand strategy on a future show. Are you, are you willing to join me?
1: Absolutely, though, uh, you should be warned. You may know that I'm a bit of a skeptic. Of I know. The value I know. That's it. why I'm
0: asking you on. I want to have a debate about this.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Happy
0: right. uh, Happy to do it. <laughs> okay, great. So, Professor Ron Krebs, again, thank you for joining us today on National Security This, this Week. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of our show. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time again with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love your feedback on our show, National Security This Week, so please take a few minutes to email KYMN Radio to let us know how we're doing. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.